council is what a council achieves. There is a council with a C-O-U-N-C-I-L, which is a group of people gathered together to consider a subject, and then there's council, C-O-U-N-S-E-L, that results from that council. And the Lord has his counsel of his own heart and his own mind in his eternal counsel. And there is no counselor that can add anything to the Lord's counsel. Have you ever read in the Bible anywhere, like Romans chapter 11, 33 through 36, who hath been his counselor? No one has ever been God's counselor because he has all the counsel he needs himself. Amen. So I left the second, the first sermon as we ended it this morning with verse 11, the counsel of the Lord standeth forever. The conclusions of his counsel and his decrees stand forever. No one can alter them. And the thoughts of his heart to all generations. So whatever he thought and consulted with himself in eternity, he brings to pass. But notice the verse before it. The verse before it is verse 10, and it says, The Lord bringeth the counsel of the heathen to naught. Now the heathen in nations and religions among priests in society get together with councils as well and come up with conclusions as their being their counsel. And so they determine we're going to do this and we're going to do that, and the Lord overrides it. Right. Did Haman accomplish some counsel and get legislation passed in the Persian Empire? He did. But was the Lord able to overrule that counsel by layering some new counsel on top of it? If it couldn't be altered, then we'll just get rid of all the enemies that would execute it. And so they did that. Zach wanted to remind me at break time of the fact that man is always working to overthrow his own counsel, and sometimes he's able to do it even if the counsel cannot be reversed. He just layers it with new counsel. For instance, Daniel was thrown in the lion's den by a decree that they elicited out of Darius that couldn't be altered. But there was another decree made as well, that those men that had thrown Daniel on the way and had conspired against him should be thrown into that lion's den. And the lions behave differently because the counsel of the Lord standeth forever. Their counsel was overthrown. The Lord bringeth the counsel of the heathen to naught. He maketh the devices of the people of none effect. Because we live in the information age, a barrage, a cacophony of noises coming at us every day about the counsel of the heathen and the devices of the people. And we've got to remember, it's not going to stand. God's thoughts will stand, and God's counsel is going to stand. And so when this comes to covenants, God has made with us an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure. And it's going to stand, because it's the thoughts of his heart to a thousand generations. And let's trust him for that and delight in it and learn as much as we can about his covenants. What is the everlasting covenant? It is the name I have chosen from the Bible to describe God getting together with himself when there was no one else and purposing in himself who was independently happy, infinitely perfect, I am that I am, that he would display his wisdom, his power, his wrath, and his grace and mercy by creating a couple of races of beings, several, Angels, men, both rational creatures, some irrational creatures like your kitty cat or your puppy dog at home, some immaterial, some, Im, some matter, and he'd make the universe. Right. He chose to do that in eternity. And it, it was by covenant that he was going to create, that there would be sin, that he would save some, not all, bypassing some, and that number cannot be increased or decreased, as our old confessions of faith say in 1646 and 1689 in the third section, the third paragraph, that that decree made before the world began of those that would be saved cannot be increased or decreased because it is made absolutely certain by God in the thoughts of his heart and the counsel of his own will. And when we go to places like Ephesians chapter 1, and let's just go ahead and turn there, we will see him doing things before the foundation of the world according to his own will. 
So it's his will making decisions before the earth is even created. And this is what we mean by the everlasting covenant, or as some call it, the covenant of grace. Let's start in the middle of this sentence of verses 3 through 6 at verse 5. Having predestinated us under the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself. Now that's a tremendous statement there, the first half of verse 5. Having predestinated us, determining our destiny beforehand to be adopted as the children of God and that Jesus Christ would bring it to pass according to the good pleasure of his will. Just focus on those words. His will, the counsel of his heart to a thousand generations, the the decrees coming out of his eternal counsel. When we say the everlasting covenant, we mean that before there were angels, before there was men, before there was a world, before there was Genesis 1-1, God purposed something. And And God purposed that he was going to create, there would be rebellion against him. He arranged it, he allowed, he was never the author of sin by forcing any creature to sin. They voluntarily chose to do that. He would save some of them, bypass others for the praise of his glory, and it was the pleasure of his will to do it. It just it seemed good in his sight to do it. So it is called the good pleasure of his will, that some would be the children of God and some would be left the children of the devil. We all deserve to be the children of the devil. If God was simply fair, if he was only fair, we would all go to hell. It's because of grace. You were named intelligently. You know that. Okay. It's because of grace that some go to heaven. To the praise of the glory of his grace, in verse 6, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. We keep reading, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. He wants to display the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. This plan of salvation and this order of the universe and these covenants abound with wisdom and prudence. They are incredibly wise and incredibly prudent and incredibly creative for the salvation of some for the glory of God, having made known unto us the mystery of his will. Why was it a mystery? Because there was no one there to hear it to see it, to read it. It was in eternity past. It's the everlasting covenant. The mystery of his will according to his good pleasure. There's his pleasure again. He's in his counsel. What can we do? He says to himself. Does he use the plural? Oh, yes, he does. Let us go down. Let us make man after our own image having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself. There was no, it was not crying of the creatures to him that caused him to do it. It was all within himself. This is what we believe about God and about the Bible. It was in himself that he did it. When Jesus saw that the seminary graduates rejected his preaching, and it was the prostitutes and the tax collectors that believed his preaching, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them unto babes. I can see your will being worked out in this because it seemed good in thy sight. And that's the only explanation we need. If we start asking questions beyond that, the Bible responds by saying, you don't have a right to ask the questions. Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? The good pleasure which he hath purposed in himself. These words, do you remember the first time you heard these words? Didn't they light you up? Yes, they did. They changed our lives. And when we talk about covenants, this is all about the covenants, especially the everlasting covenant that God was in himself. There was no one else there. The counsel was of his own mind and his own will for the good pleasure of his own will that he purposed to do everything that then took place that we have recorded for us in the Bible and that we're able to observe by experience. But in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. 
He's going to get the whole family of God together soon. Most of it's in heaven. A few of us are still on earth. And as soon as we get there, or, soon, or when he sends his son, we'll all be together. In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. Do you see all these words and the repetition of them? Who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. The everlasting covenant is God in his own will deciding what he's going to do. And he determined within himself about creation and about salvation and about election and about predestination and about giving an inheritance to beneficiaries called the children of God and that not all would be saved, but some would be. No angels would be recovered from their transgression, but a, a fiery hell would be prepared for them. Eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Matthew 25 and verse 41. All of it from eternity, according to the good pleasure of his will and his own counsel, he purposed to do it in himself. Everything starts with him, the first cause, or there wouldn't be anything. And if he was only fair, there wouldn't be any saved. But thankfully, there's grace for the riches of his grace. Look over at 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy 1, it's another verse that you know well. But notice what I just did with you in Ephesians. I only wanted to emphasize the words will and counsel and pleasure and grace and in himself because those verses are powerful. And we want to emphasize the aspect of God in them because he's the one that made the covenant, the everlasting covenant. 2 Timothy 1.9, Who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose according to his own purpose and grace which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began so where Jesus Christ Jesus was born 2000 years ago how was that purpose given to us in Jesus Christ before the world began by covenant a commitment that I will do this and you will become flesh the word will become flesh and dwell among men for 33 and a half years, and so forth and so on. And we're going to prepare a heaven for them, and we're going to prepare a hell for the devil and his angels. All of it determined in himself for his good pleasure before the world began. In that song, which I do love, do you still love it, Ryan? Does Sarah still love it? Yes, she does. Twas with an everlasting love. I'm glad that it messed you up a couple weeks ago when we sang it. Stay messed up. Before earth on her huge columns placed. What are columns? They're a foundation. You know, we would, they're supports. And so it's before the foundation of the world. Before earth on her huge columns. Oh, thank you. QT. Wonderful song. Jeremiah 31, 3, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. Do you know why you care anything about God if you do today? Because with loving kindness, he's drawn us. Because he's loved us with an everlasting love. When it says we love him because he first loved us, it means by thousands of years, all the way back into eternity. It doesn't mean by 15 minutes when the preacher started his sermon. It means all the way back in eternity. Wonderful, wonderful things that we rejoice in. So what is the everlasting covenant? The first question we should answer about the everlasting covenant, it is God's holy design, his holy assignment of duties, preparation of places and things, and a guarantee to save all the elect. It's the whole work of salvation from beginning to end. It is God's counsel or determinate counsel to save. It is the reason for the universe for him to display himself. The Lord hath made all things for himself. Yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. And all of it comes together in the everlasting covenant. Do not reduce the Godhead to ordinary faults or needs of men when they covenant. God did not covenant as a remedy. Uh Uh-oh, I'm in trouble. Adam and Eve have messed things up. 
No, God did not covet as a remedy because he did it long before them. And he was not obligated by others to covenant. We're often obligated to covenant. You can't come to me and say that you want to marry someone and have me participate even as a spectator if you're not going to covenant together. So you're obligated to covenant. No one obligated God to covenant. It was in himself for the good pleasure of his own will. And that's where we start. That's where we start in thinking about anything. Anything. The governments of this world, our physical health, our future, our inheritance, salvation, the fall of man, the sovereignty of God, that he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, we start. It was his good pleasure in himself to do what he did. Who are the parties or persons to the everlasting covenant? God entered into covenant with himself to save certain men, which I've read to you already from Ephesians chapter 1. God uses the plural for his actions because there is a plurality in the Godhead. And so the Father chose some, which is another question that needs to be asked, and that is, who are the beneficiaries? But the Father chose some in, in another, in, in his Son, who was the Word made flesh. Right. And so we see the whole... Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1, 2. All three members are mentioned there. Who are the parties? Therefore, we conclude all three members of the Godhead participated in this everlasting covenant before the world began. When he purposed in himself. But himself is a threefold. And God said... Not, and God's said, and God said, let us make man in our own image. So the singular declares itself in the plural because of 1 John 5, 7. There are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. But they are able to covenant together in the different operations and relationships that they would have in saving us. No one can be God's counselor or advisor. You're in the New Testament I mentioned Romans 11. Look at it for just a moment for us to be reminded of what Paul might mean when he says that there has been no counselor to help God out. Because Romans 3, I mean Romans 11, verses 33 to 36 are about salvation. Look at Romans 11:33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. It's got an exclamation point. I read it the way it's supposed to be read. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath been his counselor? Or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again? For of him and through him and to him are all things. To whom be glory forever. Amen. Amen and amen. Those words should light your soul up. That's, that's a large part of why I'm preaching this. For your soul to be lit up that from cover to cover, it's about a covenant God. And this covenant God needed no help in arriving at his covenant. He did it all himself. This is salvation that's under consideration. Do you want to get a context? Now notice it says amen, so there is no context that comes next. Because that's ending it. The context is in front of these verses. I just read to you. Verse 27. For this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes, but as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sakes. For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. That's as sure as anything can be. That's the covenant of salvation. For as ye in times past have not believed God, yet have now obtained mercy through their unbelief, even so have these also now not believed, that through your mercy they also may obtain mercy. For God hath concluded them all in unbelief, that he might have mercy upon all. Amen. That is just sovereignty of God in the salvation of men, including the practical phase of believing the gospel. But there's the election of God, no repentance on the part of God, because the gifts and calling of God for eternal life are without repentance. Right. Even if there's a segment of those people that don't believe the gospel. And so we rejoice. 
And Paul can't do anything else but just burst into praise in verses 33 through 36 after having explained that to the Romans. Let's look at Ephesians 3. It's okay. Ephesians 3. While you're, defeat, while you're turning to Ephesians 3, or arriving there, Romans 9 tells us, what if God? Mm-hmm. Now this is in his eternal counsel. What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? What are you going to say about it? Mm-hmm. You're going to fight against it? What if God is willing to do that? Show his wrath and his power in vessels, creatures, that he's designed for that end. And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he hath afore prepared unto glory. Even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also the Gentiles. So God tells us the motive. I want to display my wrath and my power. We get moved when we see a lot of wrath and power by someone in authority. Mm -hmm. Did you enjoy our president calling a reporter a couple of days ago a lightweight and telling him he should not speak to the president of the United States that way? I did. I was wondering what the Yellow Pages had for the nearest tree service. For a wood chipper. Wrath and power. Mercy and grace. But there's more. That's why I had you turn to Ephesians 3. You know Romans 9, and I want you to remember Ephesians 3. And this morning we started with Ephesians 2, and I mentioned Ephesians 3. I mentioned that in verse 5, there was something that was hidden from from the sons of men as it was now revealed to the apostles and prophets. And in verse 9, it says it had been hid from the beginning of the world. And then in verse 11, it says it's his eternal purpose, which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. So us Gentiles being brought in was something before creation. There weren't even any Jews or Gentiles. But in God's covenant plan, there would be, and we would be cut out of the commonwealth of Israel for for a time. But here's what I want, and it's different than what I just said from this passage to remind you of us looking at it earlier today. To the intent, this salvation through Jesus Christ, in verse 10, we're told the intent of it. We get to go into the counsel of God and see what he was going for in saving. Now, I've already mentioned wrath and power on those that go to hell and mercy and grace on those that are, end up in heaven. That, that's clear from Romans 9 and other places. But here's a, here's a third. To the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. The church that Jesus saved. The church that is predestinated to be adopted by God. The church that will inherit eternal life and be joint heirs with Christ, God displayed wisdom in choosing that church, in saving that church, in preparing a place for that church, in order to impress the highest level of rational beings there are in the universe, the principalities and powers, or good angels in heavenly places. You're part of a drama. And we're the recipients. He does the acting. He does the work. He paid the price. He sent the Son for us to impress the angels. And do you know know what it says in 1 Peter? I don't need to mention that one to you, do I? Because you know that one. They desire to look into these things. It overwhelms them that they were bypassed and that they're now our servants by electing grace and predestinating purpose for the adoption of sons by Jesus Christ to God. Who are the parties? According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. There's two parties. Since we're at Ephesians, we could turn to a number of places. But when we look at Ephesians 1, 
for, according as he hath chosen us in him, that's two parties to the covenant right there, the one choosing and the one that we're chosen in. But then, before you can get through with this section of Ephesians 1, which ends at verse 14, it says in verse 13, in whom, that's in Christ, the one we were chosen in, he's mentioned in verse 12, in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when the good news of it was brought to Gentile ears, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Then bang, there's the third person of the Godhead indwelling us. We're sealed by the, his, the change in our lives, by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit that sheds abroad the love of God in our hearts. And it's that Holy Spirit that can teach you about the love of God more than you know this far. And that's why in Ephesians chapter 3, beginning at verse 14, which I wouldn't let my wife play to me on the way to church this morning, she played Ephesians 3, 1 through 13, three times to me. I didn't want to hear verse 14 because I, I wanted the, the lesson of the first 13 verses. But in the 14th verse, there is a prayer to be made for elect children of God who are born again, who are Gentiles, who have been brought in, the middle wall of partition broken down, they're made one with the Jews, yet they need a whole lot more. They need more power of the Holy Spirit to show them the full dimensions of Jesus Christ's love until it passes their knowledge and they're filled with all the fullness of God. That is how much God wants for His children, even while they're here in this world. What did the divine persons in the covenant agree to do? God the Father chose beneficiaries. Jesus Christ came to die for them. Jesus said, okay, let's go back there and look at it. John chapter 6. John chapter 6. If you'll show me that you're understanding, I want to cut this part short. We'll come back to it next time because I want to get to Noah. I want to leave you with something more practical. But there's nothing better than this. I wouldn't care if I was going to drown in a flood or not as long as I end up in heaven. I can take the 60 seconds of choking for air for an eternity with the Lord. But the Lord's been better to us than that. John chapter 6, verse 37. All that the Father giveth me. I want you to read the Bibles differently. Whenever I'm able to help you read the Bible differently and get more out of it, and be moved more by it, and it move you more, I'm pleased. Uh, that's my purpose. All that the Father giveth me, that is a covenant relationship. And we know about it from other places that details it in other ways. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. There is God's will. There is God's counsel. The Word is going to become flesh. He's going to be my son by a supernatural incarnation in the womb of a virgin. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. I didn't come down from heaven to do mine own will. There is another will driving the whole universe, and it's the will of my Father. It's the will of Almighty God that sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for us, and according to that eternal covenant, I will lose none of them, but will raise it up again at the last day. Because I have been assigned that if I will come and die, I will not lose one of them. But he will give eternal life to every single one of them that he has given to me. And I am committed to do the will of my Father, and Jesus was committed to it the entirety of his life. And so that it says in Hebrews chapter 10, I am come to do thy will, O God. So the Father did the choosing, the Son did the dying. The Son died the needed substitutionary death. Was that death determined before the world began? Look over at 1 Peter chapter 2 and let's answer that question with the Bible. 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 1. Verse 18 says, for as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, your pitiful religion you had before the gospel came to you, but you are redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, 
who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world. There it is. But Jesus didn't exist. He did by covenant. And he was assigned by covenant. And he knew from his earliest days, at the age of 12, he said, don't you know that I must be about my father's business? Because he had been foreordained to the business of saving us who verily was foreordained before, I love that when I got a four and a before, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Because it was only 2,000 years ago that Jesus of Nazareth showed up on the scene of this earth. For 4,000 years, there was only the promise of a Messiah. There wasn't one seen yet. They knew about a virgin birth from Isaiah 7:14. They knew about Shiloh coming out of Judah from Genesis chapter 49. They knew about the Lord of David coming, but they didn't see him until the pages of the New Testament. Remember that wonderful verse that opens up Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1? The generation of Jesus Christ. Oh, yes. And we love that because that's putting the covenants into play. Thank you, Lord, for all that. And the Spirit applied Christ's death to the elect, which I've already read to you from Ephesians chapter 1, Titus 3, 5. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. So if that's part of salvation, that salvation was determined in eternity past. This is the everlasting covenant. And I'm going to skip the the rest of it. I've got nine other points because there's 12 questions that should be asked about the everlasting covenant. It's not my ordinary way of doing things, but... Let's be extraordinary. Then there's the Adamic covenant. And I think I've spent enough time on that recently that we can pass over that today. Briefly, the Adamic covenant. That was a covenant made in time with Adam. Adam knew what he was up against. Adam knew that he was making a choice not only for himself, but for others. And it's not called a covenant, and we don't need the word covenant. Sometimes I get a little frustrated at people who are so simple too simple, way too simple to be readers of really any book because they're always looking for a word when you don't need the word. All you got to have is a party stipulating something and the stipulation defined and you have a covenant. All you need is a person declaring that they're going to do something and you have a promise, even if you don't have the word promise. There's a covenant in the beginning with Adam because we get over to Romans and we find out there was definitely a covenant with Adam. One man's disobedience made many sinners. And we can see that it's a covenant from the fact that there's an arrangement set up by God that he holds to all men and that is Adam's representation is applied to all men. That's, That's the nature of a covenant then we have it compared to how we're saved by Jesus, and we know that we're saved by Jesus by a covenant, so we know that it must be a covenant with Adam. So it's the Adamic covenant. It's a covenant of works. It's do this and live. There was a tree there, and that tree implies a great deal more than Adam just continuing on his existence for a while longer because he wasn't going to die anyway. But he disobeyed, and he lost access to the tree of life. And now maybe you'll think that there's more to the tree of life. What's it in heaven for? It involves a whole lot more than living to 75 when you thought you were going to die at 70. It's eternal life. That's why it's in heaven. And the way to it's been opened up again. But there was a covenant with Adam, and we're able to see its effects everywhere. It's a covenant of works between God and Adam, but the assignees of the covenant are you and me. I don't like the word beneficiaries when I'm thinking about the Adamic covenant because I don't think of any benefits flowing my way. I think of being assigned his curses. And so we were. And it's the Adamic covenant. And we, we, we rest on it. It's important. And Paul made it important in Romans 5. Paul made it important in 1 Corinthians 15 when he said, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. before we leave the covenant of Adam. I know my time. And I'm going to try to do it. 
Knowing and doing is two different things. This covenant with Adam and the imputation of sins that it assigns is high sovereignty. When I try to think about it, you know we can't think about eternity. Everything's on a timeline to us. And how do you have something before the timeline even gets started? And when we look at the sky and we think that it never ends, well, it's got to end. Everything has an end. There's a shell out there somewhere for this thing. That's us trying to put it into terms for our minds. But when it comes to this sovereignty, humanity that thinks so highly of itself, black lives matter. What does God have to say about any lives mattering? They only matter for his glory, and he'll get it one way or another. Humanity thinks so highly of itself, but it is subject to the choices of God and Adam. He has assigned Adam to their account. How many? 50 billion since creation? They individually and in totality must die three deaths for a reason most do not even know about. Do you know how sovereign this God is? It humbles me to nothing. God be merciful to me, a sinner, are the only words that should come out of our mouths. They were not consulted for this covenant or for their own existence to suffer for this covenant. Only this covenant explains why babies die and an age of accountability is heresy. Those ignorant of the covenant or hate the very concept of this covenant are yet damned by this covenant because they are the assignees of its consequences. You are not asked about existence. You are not asked about being a rational creature. This is when I wish I was an irrational creature. I wish I was your kitty cat and you put a bowl of milk out for me every day and gave me some cat food because I wouldn't be able to think I wouldn't be able to fear I wouldn't be able to wonder but he made me rational and he made the angels even more rational and then he set up a covenant with Adam that condemns us three different ways by one man representing us and we weren't around and we weren't asked so that Arminians throw out the absolutely unintelligible question, but we didn't get a chance. Oh, yes, we got a chance. We got a chance in the smartest man that's ever lived. Adam. The the sovereignty of God. Let's get to Noah. The The first eight occurrences of the word covenant in the Bible are about Noah. The next 14 occurrences of the word covenant in the Bible are about Abraham, are with Abraham. So let's turn over in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 6. You were there last evening, I hope. And in a few minutes, let's just look at some of the high points of the Noahic covenant. Genesis chapter 6. God made a covenant with Noah. God made two covenants with Noah. And you're here because of both of them. And you don't have to worry about a lot of water because of one of them. Genesis 6, we're hardly into the Bible. But we are 1,656 years into the Bible when we get to Genesis chapters 6, 7, and 8. One quarter of the earth's history has already disappeared. Noah was born 1,056 years after Adam, who wasn't born. He's the 10th generation from Adam. The next tenth generation ends with Abraham. There's ten generations, Adam to Noah, inclusive, and the Bible uses inclusive. How do we know that? Because in Jude, verse 14, it says, Enoch, the seventh from Adam. And when you go look at the genealogies, he's the seventh from Adam, inclusive of Adam. So inclusive of Adam, Noah is tenth, Abraham is twentieth, because there's a second set of ten. And the world changed. The world for the first 10 generations was different than the 10 generations after Noah 
because things changed pretty drastically when they got off the ark. Noah was 600 years old when the flood came, which made it 1,656 years after Adam. Abraham was born 352 years after the flood. So a total of 2,005 years till we get to Abraham. And you came out of two men. You came out of Adam and you came out of Noah. All nations on earth are of one blood, twice over. If you can look at it that way with me. We came out of Adam and we came out of Noah. Because by Noah and his three sons were the whole earth, was the whole earth populated. By the way, the flood proves Nephilim a lie, along with 40 or 50 other proofs. Or they have two totally separate existences. Because there was nothing left with breath on this planet with the flood. So how can you have Nephilim before the flood and Nephilim after the flood? In their opinions. Lamech. We're looking at Genesis chapter 5 in the last few verses. Who was Noah's grandfather? He had a lot of candles on his birthday cake. Methuselah. He died in the year of the flood. Then he had a son named Lamech, and Lamech named Noah. And Lamech said in verse 29 of Genesis 5, This same shall comfort us concerning our work and toil of our hands, because of the ground which the Lord hath cursed. That is just a very hopeful promise there. Lamech called, names his son Noah, which means comfort or rest, and then he explains it. Now you've got to remember, this is inspired. And Moses is writing this by inspiration, and he passes over hundreds of names and never gives any explanation. But this one, he gives an explanation for, things are going to improve with this son. And they did. Do you think it's hard for America to get a pound loaf of bread onto a grocery shelf? No. When did it change? I thought the ground was cursed. It was for 1,656 years. But when Noah got off the ark, the Lord thought, listen, this race is all messed up and they're never going to get any better. Why do I need to keep pounding them every day? I'm going to send sun and rain on them and make it a little easier to get their bread. And I'm going to give them something to put between two slices of bread. I'm going to let them take that little lamb and carve it up and have a lamb sandwich. All of that took place when Adam got off the ark. Because the Lord saw his sacrifice and it moved him and he thought within himself, I'm going to make it easier. And so this was, I wish that I could take you all right now for a one or two hour survey of commentaries, none of which will acknowledge that 529 and 821 are in the Bible and belong together. 529 says that there's going to be relief because of the curse of the ground. That was from Genesis 3. That was Adam's consequence. It was going to be difficult to get a loaf of bread for the grocery shelf or for the cupboard. Then when you look over at eight, chapter 8, at the end, when Noah gets off the ark, Genesis chapter 8, verse 20, Noah builded an altar unto the Lord and took of every clean beast. Remember, he had 14 of every clean beast, seven pairs. He had one pair of the unclean beasts. They're called sevens in the Bible. When you have a word like sevens, you've got seven pairs. You've got seven male and seven female. And so they, they needed that for food, not on the ark, for food and for worship. Because they couldn't eat the unclean stuff, even there was clean and unclean animals back then. Noah built an altar unto the Lord and took of every clean beast and of every clean fowl and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a sweet savour, and the Lord said in his heart, I love, look what, we're, look what we have opened to us in the word of God, the heart of God. When was the last time you prayed or you offered some sacrifice of praise from your lips? Because that's what God wants in the New Testament. He doesn't want us to kill the neighbor's cat and offer it to the Lord. We can give him other kinds of sacrifices. When was the last time you moved God to have a thought in his heart? 
It's there for all of you. How, how intimate and intense do you get with God? That's another subject. And the Lord smelled a sweet savour, and the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground anymore for man's sake. For the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite any more everything living as I have done. What is there in verse 21? Is there one event or is there two? There are two events. They, do not, they deny that. It's unbelievable. It will drive you crazy. Why do they only see one event? My wife was asking me, why do they only see one event? Well, with the junk they used for farm equipment, they might have thought the curse was still there. The, I'm talking about the old commentators. You know, a loaf of bread didn't appear on a shelf quite like it does today. The Lord has blessed us because we have blessed Him. So He's given us even more in the way of witty inventions. To look at some of the combines today and the planters today, and the harvesters today, it is unbelievable. The many steps that they do in one pass over a field. Then there may be a farmer in the cab, or there may not be, because it's being driven by GPS. Just on and on it goes. But I, I want you to notice these covenants. First of all, I had to tell you these two things, so that you have them in your mind. When, when Noah was born, Lamech was giving something significant about his son, that was so significant, the Holy Spirit made Moses write it down. And what Moses wrote down is that Lamech said, this man is going to provide some comfort and rest for us from the curse of the ground. Not some comfort and rest for us from an earthwide flood or a worldwide flood, but from the curse of the ground. And then we have the curse of the ground. The flood wasn't a curse of the ground. The flood was a curse against every living creature that had the breath in his nostrils. Right. And there's two things. And when we look at farming, listen, I would, I would reject the Bible based on this one point of evidence. It is easy to put a loaf of bread on a shelf. What's the cheapest loaf of bread? Finger it to me. Sign it to me. A buck? 79 cents at Aldi? What's 70 cents? Unbelievable. How in the world do they get a seed in the ground? Fertilize it. Get it up. Harvest it. Process it. Bake it. Put it in a bag. Seal the bag. Put its nutritional content on the side of the bag. Put it in a truck. Drive it to a grocery store. Take it off on a hand truck. Put it on a shelf for 70 cents? The transportation probably cost a dime. The bag probably cost five cents in the printing. You just go back. It's amazing what they're able to pull out of the ground. Right. And I want you to see why. And this is, I, want to leave, I want to finish today on Noah's covenant. And I hope that when you unwind that, that, op, that bread loaf and you pull out a piece of bread, you will remember this right here as to why you have so much. Do you know what we do at Thanksgiving? We just take all that bread. There's so much of it. We get it out to here. We just crush it down and stuff it in the turkey and call it stuffing. Because we've got so much extra, we can just stuff turkeys with it. It's my favorite part. Oh, yes. I was honored by the amount of stuffing you had. There's so much bread. What are you driving at, Pastor? When God has a thought in his heart, it is pretty, the thoughts are pretty big. Amen. And the thoughts are still affecting us 4,444 years later. And I want all of you to love this God and for you to know that you can worship him and he can be moved. But... Titus did a better job than I am. So you remember Psalm 79 in all the different ways that God can be moved. And he can be moved and think in his heart. You know what? That man, that woman, that young girl loves me with an intensity like no one else. I'm going to show her, him, her, or him, my covenant, 
and must show them my secret. I've taught you enough before that God has a secret place in his pavilion for intimate relationship with his favorites. Peter, James, and John were taken by Jesus to a variety of places that the other nine were not. And I want all of you among the three. And I want all of you in the secret place of his pavilion. And I want Psalm 25 being fulfilled toward all of you, but it's not going to happen because only some of you, and it will be a small number of you, will ever apply the effort of intense love, intense devotion, intense worship with God. And I'm going to tell you a secret. He's not all that hard. Do you know who his favorite is in the Bible? David. How many sins does the Bible tell us about David? Twelve. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Back here in in, uh, Genesis chapter 6, verse 8. The first verses are what God's going to do with man. He's going to destroy man and every creeping thing and every beast. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And that's what's stated in Hebrews eleven seven By faith, Noah built an ark to the saving of his household. How many men here are going to save their houses or part of their houses by their devotion to God? Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 9 says, Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. That's a lot about Noah right there in that ninth verse. Noah found grace, and we get a covenant. Noah, I want you to go build an ark. I want it this long. I want it this wide. I want it this high. I want it to have this many levels. I want it to have a door. And I want you to get two of every creature and bring them onto that ark. I want you to get your sons and their wives. I want there to be eight of you on that ark. And I'm going to send rain. And it took 120 years for him to build it, and he was a preacher of righteousness in the meantime. And whenever you see this covenant, the covenant of Noah, is there anything about the everlasting covenant there? How many ways does the New Testament tell us that the ark is a picture of salvation in Jesus Christ? That, that Noah put them in, and Noah went in, and God shut the door, just like election. And so baptism is also a picture of salvation, just like the ark was a picture of salvation. Where would Jesus Christ be if Noah hadn't built the ark and been on the ark? He wouldn't have come into existence because the line would have been cut off. Well, it wasn't cut off. Then he makes a covenant at the end when Noah got off the ark with a rainbow to say, I'm never going to drown the earth again like I did that time, which doesn't mean he's not going to judge the earth again. You know, we can read that verse very differently if we didn't have the New Testament because the New Testament tells us the earth that then was was overflowed with water and perished. The earth that now is, is reserved. It's, under, it's got a reservation for the same kind of judgment, but by fire, in which it's all going to melt with fervent heat. But when we see that bow in the sky, that bow in the clouds, and it, it requires a little bit of rain to ordinarily see that, so that when the little bit of rain starts, you're not, you're not thinking the little bit of rain is going to turn into a whole lot of rain, and it's going to creep into the the baby's nursery. You know, that's not going to happen because there's a bow in the sky. And remember what we learned in Isaiah 54? That that bow in the sky, that promise made to Noah, is just like the promise made to us in Christ. And so we see the everlasting covenant through Noah's covenant. It's obscure, but it's not very obscure. The seed would have been cut off if it hadn't been for the ark. And the ark is a picture of salvation. And the ark is a picture of mercy. And the ark is a picture of a man can walk with God. How can someone like Adam that hid in the trees of the forest walk with God, find grace in his sight, and move God's heart to have a thought of benevolence? Even though the explanation given is the thoughts of his heart are only evil continually. 821 is incredible. Does God send his sunshine and his rain on the evil and the good? backing up how we're looking at Genesis 8.21? Does he, through Paul, tell the pagans in Acts chapter 14 that we're trying to worship him, that God gives us what kind of seasons? 
fruitful. Were there fruitful seasons for 1,656 years? Not if Genesis 3 is true. Only by the sweat of his brow and with lots of thorns and thistles and lots of difficulty could men for 1,656 years get a loaf of bread out of the ground. But now God's changed and he has shown benevolence and the explanation is, listen, they're so messed up, they're never going to change. I'm just going to show some benevolence anyway and that benevolence is called by Paul providence and that providence is a witness that God is good in Acts chapter 14 and verse 17. Do you know how good things got when he got off the ark? All of a sudden the curse comes off the ground. How many kernels of corn are there on a cob? 16 times 50. 800. You put one in the ground, you get 800. Do you know how fast this went into force? 450 years later, it's Isaac. And the Bible tells us in Genesis 26, 12, Isaac sowed in that year and reaped a hundredfold. 10,000% return in his portfolio. God reduced the curse of the ground. Who knows what creativity or inventions Noah had because it says he became a husbandman, a farmer. And what did he build first that he didn't have on the ark? A vineyard. And all of a sudden, what did the animals want to do with men around them? They could be domesticated and turned into work animals. The first verse of chapter 9. i got to quit. It's, it's verse... It's verse 2, and the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth. And so all of a sudden, animals could be used by man as work creatures, and animals could be eaten, as it says in verses 2 and 3. Soil was deposited throughout the whole world by the flood. There was a guarantee of seasonal continuity for planned farming because the seasons would never end. They could plan on a time for planting and a time for harvesting. And the earth had never seen rain before. And all of a sudden, there's going to be rainfall. It's just unbelievable. I want, when you go to the store, or when you go home and you open up and you throw something into the toaster, you, you take it for granted. How many of you blessed God for the toaster? None of you did for stuffing. As you can tell, I did. And I'm no hero for it. I want you to be thankful for things that are a result of a covenant. And I want you to trace things back to a covenant choice that God made. And there were wonderful things that God did for Noah. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Please stand with me. Oh, Lord God, I know that you know there is so much more that should be said, could be said, and I will say what you convince me should be said, but I thank thee for thy covenants. And while I am thankful for the covenant that you made with Noah and brought the human family in the line of the Lord Jesus Christ and my line, and the line of these people before me through the ark and through the flood of waters around the whole earth. I thank thee for the line of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank thee that we can know when the rain is dropping or the rain is driving or the rain is maybe flooding our driveway a little bit, that there will not be a worldwide flood with it above the mountains because of your bow which is a token of your covenant. And we thank thee for that. And we thank thee that you have said you may appeal to that. We may appeal to it, that you will neither break your covenant with us that is in Christ Jesus, your son, so that we are sure by Noah's covenant. We thank thee for Noah's covenant. We thank thee that you have saved us by abundant wisdom and prudence through the second Adam to save us from the Adamic covenant. We thank thee for the everlasting covenant of grace whereby you have chosen us in your Son and purposed to adopt and justify us by the imminent acts of your own counsel and will in eternity. And we believe these things, and we trust them, and we pray, Heavenly Father, that you will show these people and me these things more clearly and more deeply, that we might know your secret and might know your covenant. Teach us, show us, lead us, guide us, and we'll thank you in Jesus' glorious name, in whose name and authority 
and living presence beside thee. We commit our lives for this world and eternal life in the world to come. In him, amen. Amen. You are dismissed.